Uh, let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the 46th Psalm. We are not starting Acts today. I'm not much of a situational preacher, but I do think things need to be said in light of the current pandemic. Um, John Calvin said, rightly, that every possible emotion or feeling a human being can have is addressed in the Psalter. And uh, I used to use the adage that a psalm a day keeps the devil away. But uh, I think the writer, the psalmist, this one is the sons of Korah, have for us a word from God that we need to hear living in our current situation. By the way, I have allergies. I don't have coronavirus that I know of. So don't put a big red C on my head. I've been scared to go anywhere because if I coughed, people would look at you and run the other way. I, I felt like I needed to say, unclean, unclean. <laughs> but this is a serious time for us all. I'm just trying to add a little levity here and there. Hear now the word of the Lord as we read from Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that you will open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word and that your spirit who breathed out this word would illuminate this word and our minds so that we may see and perceive and know and apply the wonderful truth here. And we pray that this word would work in us in such a way to accomplish your purposes and make us fruitful in a way that would abound to your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in a coronavirus crisis, and we are seeing panic and fear uh, people feel threatened, uh, insecure. One wise wag once said, the only creature that runs faster when he's lost is man. 
And we're seeing a lot of that today. And so we are also developing a new vocabulary. We are learning terms like social distancing and self-quarantining and measured proactivity, but also self-medication, which ain't really very new, is it? A lot of that going on. And so on responding to the current situation, where do we go to get perspective? Where do we go to get a grip on reality? You know, uh, people don't trust the media much anymore, and that's really because of the fruit of postmodernism. Postmodernism has argued that there is no truth, that everybody has their version of the truth, there is no such thing as objectivity anymore, that people read into everything their own set of agendas, ideas, and worldview. So that doesn't help much, does it? And so whatever particular standpoint you have regarding that, where do you go to get a grip? Well, it's hard in our current situation. Do you trust the government? Do you trust politicians? Do you trust the medical community? Um, cynicism abounds in our country. I went to the grocery store yesterday in need of a few items, and I saw things that I have never seen except in Louisiana. In Louisiana, anytime a hurricane is boiling up in the Gulf, people panic and run to the grocery store and to Home Depot. Home Depot, they buy plywood to put all over the windows. And they go and, and buy water. You can't find water. Even though Louisiana is full of water, you can't find water. And people panic and do everything they can to prepare for the coming hurricane. But I see it here now. I see people sort of afraid. Um, and what we all need, in my judgment uh, and humble but accurate opinion, is a word from God uh, to get perspective. And we need to be the church in the world in this situation. Uh, we need to be salty. We need to be uh, the light of the world. Martin Luther's famous hymn, Ein Festeberg ist unser Gott, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, was basically a paraphrase of Psalm 46. And though this psalm is attributed to the sons of Korah, it is classified as a song of Zion. And in Psalm 46, there are loud echoes of Psalm 2, where divine protection promised, is promised to the king and is extended to the capital city of Jerusalem. Spurgeon speaks of Psalm 46 as the song of faith in very troubled times. And so it was such a great comfort to Martin Luther, personally, he put it in verse form, as far as the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And as for Luther's A Mighty Fortress, theories abound as to when it was written in his life and on what occasion. Most likely it was written between 1527 and 1529, 10 years or so after the 95 theses circulated throughout much of Europe and uh, as a result was igniting a theological firestorm which issued in the Protestant Reformation. The Black Plague was also especially virulent through much of Europe in around 1527, nearly killing Martin Luther's son. Luther was a wreck. He was exhausted. 
He spent much time reading and meditating on Psalm 46, especially the promise that God is a bulwark or a fortress or a castle who never um, uh, fails, never fails his people. According to one ch church historian, uh, Luther, when he was terribly discouraged, would turn to his friend Philip Melanchthon and say, Come, Philip, let us sing the 46th Psalm. And so it's, it's a powerful testimony to uh, a word we need to hear today. Um, Luther said of this particular psalm, We sing this psalm to the praise of God because he is with us. He is the with us kind of God. And he is with us powerfully and miraculously preserves us and defends us, his church, and his word against all fanatical spirits, against the gate of hells, as it were, against the implacable hatred of the devil, and against all the assaults of the world and the flesh and sin. Because our fathers in the faith were sustained throughout their trials by the knowledge and love of the Psalter we would be foolish to ignore their wise counsel and the faithful example they have set before us in any crisis when we feel powerless we feel things are out of control and they usually are out of our control and so it's easy for people to panic. It's easy for people to uh, look at things and maybe overreact or maybe not react at all and be paralyzed in fear. But we need a word from God, and that's what Psalm 46 is to us today. As far as the background of this psalm, as I mentioned earlier, it is classified as a song of Zion. And the Zion songs are identified as such because these psalms proclaim the excellencies of Zion. That is the mountain upon which Jerusalem and the temple are located, which is the apple of Yahweh's eye. In, in these psalms, Yahweh is depicted as the great warrior king. El Gabor, who protects his own as he advances his, his kingdom. These psalms are polemical. That means they are fighting words because they are a response to Canaanite polythe polytheism. And so these psalms were apologetic in nature. And in contrast, the songs of Zion proclaim that Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, alone is God. It is he who made the mountains where the Canaanites foolishly believed their gods dwelt. But the Zion theme is not just limited to the physical mountain upon the city of Jerusalem where it happens to sit. Zion, hear me carefully, is the very symbol of God's kingdom on earth. A kingdom which has a visible expression in the city of Jerusalem and in the temple. Yet the people of Israel also know that Yahweh's kingdom extends beyond Zion to the ends of the earth. In the Zion songs, it is Yahweh who protects the earthly Zion and its people and its ruler. It is Yahweh who provides for his people, especially during their tri trials. It is Yahweh who blesses them when in faith they obey his covenant. And it is Yahweh who will bring down the covenant curses upon Israel when they disobey him. The citizens of spiritual Zion trust in Yahweh's promise and they delight 
in his presence. And they seek to honor him in every way through living lives of gratitude, that is, loving him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and their neighbor as themselves. And they believe that Yahweh will be seen through the worst of times and trials, which is why they both praise him and call upon his name in these songs. So it is the songs then that Zion is the center of Israelite life. Or it is in this sense that Zion is the center of Israel's life. And why the earthly Mount Zion, the city of Jerusalem, points beyond the city and temple to the new Jerusalem and the heavenly city. At this point in redemptive history, Zion is the holy mount where Yahweh chooses to be present with his people. He delights when his people acknowledge him as the true and living God. All of this points ahead to the coming of Jesus Christ, who is the true temple and the true Israel, in and whom and through whom the kingdom of God is realized at, in the new covenant era. As the author of Hebrews tells Christian worshipers in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 to 24, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. When we come together for worship, we do as citizens of the heavenly Zion, the city of the living God whose inhabitants have been made perfect by the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. We too sing the songs of Zion. But we sing them in reference to God's kingdom and to the covenant mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's get into the psalm. We've laid a little background information on it. I believe the historical situation is Second Chronicles 20, but I'm not going to get into that because I want to get into the psalm because here is where I believe the comfort is. There are three stanzas. Each is marked off by Selah, which means pause. The first stanza, verses 1 through 3, reminds us that God is sovereign and has power over nature. God is sovereign and has power over nature. The second stanza, verses 4 through 7, describe Yahweh's power in defending his holy city from all attackers. The third stanza, verses 8 through 11, speak of God's power over all the warriors of the earth. The tone of Psalm 46, if you could uh, describe a tone, is both robust and defiant. Robust and defiant. And so uh, the psalm focuses upon, if there had to be a central theme to this psalm, it focuses upon the presence of the Lord. Using language typical of the prophets, Yahweh, uh, unlike the false gods of the Canaanites, is said to come down into the midst of his people. Whenever he does so, he throws Israel's enemies into confusion. Only the Israelites 
are in covenant relationship with Yahweh, they alone can declare the Lord of hosts is with us. The very realization that Yahweh dwells in the midst of Israel on Zion gives the occasion for the sons of Korah to compose this particular song or psalm. And as we look at the text of Psalm 46, you'll notice a threefold repetition found in verse 1, and then again in verses 7 and 11. The psalm opens the declaration in verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. In verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us, a phrase which is repeated again in verse 11. The God of Israel is a personal God who is for us and with us. Think about that for a moment. Jesus said, I will never, never leave you or forsake you. I will always be with you. And in the trials and difficulties and hardships and insecure times and vulnerable times of life, you can count on that promise that he is with you. He is for you. He is not against you. Though all outward signs may seem to preach to us that he's not, he is. And so the names of God in this psalm are extremely important. They are explained uh, usually in our English translations of the Bible. Yahweh is the all-powerful creator and sustainer of all things. That is the name of God that was too holy to be uttered by the Israelites. He is the God of the covenant, the God who has entered into covenant with his people. You'll see that in your Bible when it has capitalized L-O-R-D. That's the name Yahweh. Also, um, he draws near to us and he is ever-present. The Israelites also know God as Elohim. And as Yahweh Sabaoth, Luther's Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of the host of heaven. He is the great king over all the earth, and yet for the Israelites, he is personal. He's also the God of Jacob. Now think about this for a moment. I read that term God of Jacob, and I say, well, why didn't he say the God of Abraham or the God of Isaac? Why does he pick Jacob up? Do you know anything about Jacob? He's a con man. He's a sham. He's a con artist. He's the last person in the world you would ever think would be selected by God or even God to attach his name to him. That's because God is a God of grace. And the, to see that name, the God of Jacob, should make you shout inside. Because that means Jesus is the friend of sinners. And so the names in this psalm point us to the redemption we have in Christ. And so the psalmist here uses three metaphors to describe God in the opening verse. He says, first, he is a refuge. A refuge is a safe place, the truly ultimate safe place, in a time of trouble. Safe place in a time of trouble. It's a place people can run to for protection. He is our strength. He can do all things. As the people of Israel had just witnessed numerous times in the Old Testament. But he's an ever-present help when trouble comes. Unlike the Canaanite deities, Yahweh may be found in times of trial. He is with us, not far away. He is active, not indifferent. 
He is the fortress for his people, keeping us safe whatever circumstances may be. And we always need him, for he is found with us when we need him the most. That is a word people need today to see and hear in the body of Christ in such times of panic and maybe overreaction, though some would argue that. I'm not sure. I don't think anybody will know until it's over, right? I don't think anybody will know how bad this might be. Now, the psalmist has used three metaphors to describe this God. He is our fortress. He is our strength. He is a ever-present help in time of trouble. And because the Lord of hosts is all these things, then in verses 2 through 3, the psalmist affirms, therefore we will not fear, though the earth... You know what he's talking about here? He's talking about an earthquake. Earthquake! You ever been in an earthquake? I was in one one time at uh, Biola. I was at a General Assembly church planting seminar before we had the General Assembly at Biola in about 1989 or 90. Just had moved here in 88 to start this church. I was down there and a man was preaching to us in a chapel and all of a sudden all of us in the chairs were kind of wiggling all over the place. And you just had no sense of stability and the funny thing was the speaker never noticed it. He was so engrossed in what he was saying and what he was preaching, he never knew. But this is a devastating earthquake. This is one that turns the world inside out. And so the earth gives way. The mountains are moved into the heart of sea. Though its waters roar and foam, that could be a tsunami. Though the mountains tremble at its swelling. As creatures, the most permanent things we encounter are earth and see in this world. We cannot move them. We cannot direct them. Only the Lord can. But when the ground shakes beneath us and the sea rages as in times of storm, we know that we are safe in the impenetrable strong fortress of Yahweh. He is our refuge in times of trouble. As important Uh, an important redemptive historical theme found throughout the Old and New Testament surfaces here. In many places, the Bible affirms that when Yahweh comes in judgment, the earth shakes, the mountains disappear, as does the ocean. This is why back in the day in which people still believed in God's providence, natural disasters were described as acts of God. Now, when I read that last night, I thought to myself, yeah, I know about acts of God. I lived in Louisiana for 10 years. Louisiana has Napoleonic law. That means when my neighbor's 145-foot pine tree falls from his backyard across my front yard and crushes two vehicles, he's not at fault. Well, why is he not at fault? It's his tree fell on my stuff. And I only had liability insurance on both cars. So I'm out two vehicles. He's out nothing. Why? Napoleonic law. You know what they call it? An act of God. I had to swallow hard because I do understand that kind of thinking. But I thought insurance would do better. But here, that's what people call them. Acts of of God. The Israelites knew it was Yahweh who shook the earth, who caused the storm. 
We're part of His providential ordering of things and a fact of life in our fallen world. Do you understand that the world, the physical creation, and all of this diseases and stuff in the world is here because of the fall? And we still live in a fallen world. We all want to point the finger and blame someone, but ultimately it's because we live in this fallen world. And yet there were occasions when these acts are God's judgment in response to specific human sins. Therefore Yahweh is to be feared apart from a mediator and a covenant in which God promises blessings to his people and deliverance from their enemies. And so the image of the complete disruption of the natural order as part of the judgment of God who reigns from Zion, has a very loud echo in the Gospel of Luke in connection with the second coming of Jesus Christ. As we read in Luke 21, verses 25 to 28, just listen. And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth of the nations, perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves and people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. On the day when Jesus returns, called the day of the Lord, the earth itself will give way. The mountains will move into the sea. The waters will foam and disappear. Yahweh has come in judgment. He is Lord over all the earth. And when he draws near, he strikes terror into the hearts of those who renounce his Son. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, as the one whose blood has covered your sins, as the one whose righteousness has entitled you to be an heir of God. You should be panicking at anything because the only safe place, the only ark in the floods of life is Jesus. And so the city of God, the earthly Zion, Jerusalem, the place where God chose to dwell in the midst of his people, and the river is a metaphor for blessing and restoration. We see that in Ezekiel's prophecy when he speaks of living water flowing out from the temple of Yahweh. Also in Revelation 22, 1 through 5, John interprets the water of life which nourishes the tree of life. In watering his people, God provides his people with joy and blessing and he causes his people and his city to stand even in times of trial. As you read Revelation 22, you see these images of temple and city and the heavenly Jerusalem coming down from heaven as being metaphors for God's people. And so it's a beautiful, beautiful analogy of even in times of trial, how God helps his people, brings his people through. The earth may shake, the sea may roar, but God's holy city and his people stand firm. Even when the nations rage against one another, one earthly kingdom after another coming and going, all God need do is speak one word and the world melts. Just as God brought it into existence 
by the same word. We need a larger vision of God. Here's what happens to us. We get caught up focusing on the horizontal of what's happening, and we forget. We gaze at the problem and glance at God rather than glancing at the problem and gazing upon God. And Psalm 46 is telling us, look at your God. See who he is. Because that's the only comfort you can have. His people can say of him, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Yahweh Sabaoth leads the armies of heaven into battle. He is our God, demonstrating his grace and mercy toward his people by covenanting with Jacob. No doubt this is a militaristic triumphant note. Our God is greater than any God the pagans may conjure up. Our God commands the armies of heaven. Our God creates and destroys, but with one word. He dwells in our midst as he did with Jacob and with Isaac and with Abraham. He is our fortress, which refers in particular here to a high mountain stronghold, not just a shelter, as the word refuge does. And so the closing stanza of this psalm points to the people of God ahead to the end, uh, to the time of the end in the light of the victories they have already witnessed. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. And so when the psalmist tells people to behold the works of the God, he is using the language of prophecy. Those who see the future and in the midst of trial and trouble, God's people lose their perspective. They develop tunnel vision. They fixate on the current trial and circumstances and lose sight of God's bigger picture. I have to say this over and over again. Our vision of who God is shapes our understanding of God as Trinity, our understanding of the attributes of God, our understanding of who He is, has more to do with shaping how we live in this world than we will ever know. And the citizens of Zion had just witnessed Yahweh's rise to their defense, destroying their vastly superior foe. They sing a song of Zion rejoicing in their victory. Peter tells us, that this, there will come to pass when Jesus returns to judge the world, raise the dead, and make all things new. As he tells us in, uh, in verses 8 through 11 and 13 of the third chapter of his second epistle, listen. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The new heaven and earth are the home for righteousness of righteousness but until that day when righteousness reigns 
and the earth and the sea no longer convulse, and all world ceases, when there is a new heaven and earth, the psalmist instructs us to do one thing, be still and know that I am God. Yahweh Sabaoth is our refuge, our strength, our high fortress. We are to be still, but to be still doesn't mean to be silent. To be still means to rest, to rest, to rest. We look to God to deliver us from the storm and from the shaking ground. And after all, his track record of keeping his promises is perfect. For every promise he's made, there's a promise he has kept. Therefore, we know that he is the true and living God and that we should take him at his word when he says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Indeed, every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. Safe in the arms of Jesus, who will lose none of those given to him by the Father, who is the fortress which the psalmist speaks, we too sing the victor's song. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And so when we think about Psalm 46 as it applies to us today, it is a place to go and meditate and memorize. In the fourth grade, I memorized this song, not because I was a godly person, but because my fourth grade teacher was and required it. I think we memorized over 160 verses of Scripture in public school in the fourth grade. And my teacher was uh, named Miss Virginia Moore, and she selected verses, as I look back on it now, especially as a pastor, some pretty strategic verses. But I remember we would go around from classroom to classroom in this public school, and we would recite all 160 verses. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the Lord did not use that ultimately in my conversion, knowing these scriptures because they come back to mind. But when you watch the news or you hear the media or you go on Facebook or you visit your favorite blog or you listen to your favorite podcast, remember Remember, remember, be still and know that he is God. A God who is our refuge, a God who is our strength, a God who is a very present help in trouble. I preached through the book of Revelation at least two times in my ministry. And what I understand in the book of Revelation is there are lots of cycles of things that happen. But one of the cycles of things that happen in the world are pestilence. And so pestilence comes. And as we move toward the end, before the coming, second coming of Jesus Christ, there will be an intensification of that kind of pestilence. Our only hope, our only hope, our only real hope is in the arms of Jesus. Jesus is our present help in a time of trouble. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. It is such an encouragement and help to us. And we thank you that even in crisis, even in times that are beyond our control, even in times where we experience fear, where we experience um, the feelings of insecurity, of not being safe, 
of not being protected, of not having a refuge, we ask that you open the eyes of our heart to see our mighty God who is our fortress, a bulwark never failing. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may we give as people who recognize it is you who have prospered us and that we can give back a portion of that which you have entrusted to us to be used for your name and your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.